This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time together to continue to explore your will for us in our media use. And we just ask for your voice to be heard, for a, a speaker's thoughts or our own opinions to be set aside. And we just want to know thy will. Please give us information and beyond that, transformation and decision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this session is called Anti-Social Media and Digital Pharmacia. Now, before I talk about anti-social media, I would like to talk about true social. Here you have Hebrews 10, verse 25. It says, do not forsake meeting together, assembling together, as some are in the custom of doing. Do not neglect assembling together. Do you know what the word assembling is in the Greek? It's to church. The word church in Greek is the assembly, the gathering together. So right now, you could say this is church going on. It's not the divine service. It's not the Sabbath. But church is the people of God. Church is not a building. The building is the meeting house. So part of God's design for our social experience, not to mention the worship experience that we do commit to on observing the Sabbath of the fourth commandment and on obeying that injunction in Hebrews 10, 29 that says don't neglect assembling. But one of the benefits is the social that we gain out of being the people of God. I love the fact that you guys are here at GYC. Look at this, the top 21 health benefits of church attendance. Because when we're loving one another and we're connecting, we're loving and being loved, it has physiological, mental, and of course, the most important, the spiritual benefits when we do it God's way. Worship is good for your health, Vanderbilt study. Our findings support the overall hypothesis that increased religiousness, as determined by attendance at worship services, is associated with less stress and enhanced longevity. The professor who did this study, specifically, you're twice as likely to die over a 10-year period of time if you don't attend church than if you do. Numerous empirical studies show that religious involvement is associated with better health and longer life expectancies. And you're like, how is that possible? Such drastic increased chances. Well, look at all the benefits. I'm not going to read them all and go through them all. But it has immense impact when we are plugged in socially. They talk about with that with the elderly, you know, and expanding their lifespan and health and longevity, how important the social connection is. So if the ultimate aim of the Christian life is what Jesus said, to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, then this thing about loving our neighbor is huge. And having love, by the way, means being other-centered, right? Not centered on self, but upon God and upon those around us. And we now have the narcissism epidemic. Jean Twenge points out in her famous book in 2012, showing that this generation was also already, the young adults already at that point, the most narcissistic generation ever recorded. Narcissistic, meaning self, self-centered. Now, I don't think uh, using a camera on a phone is evil. I just took a selfie with an old friend here, but did you know that the average millennial will take 25,000 selfies during their lifetime? 
that's an awful lot, right? And I got to take a hundred just to get the photo just right for my Instagram and, you know, get the lip purse or whatever. It's like, and then I'm going to go through them and I'm going to spend 45 minutes trying to get the photo right. It's like, at some point, this is vanity, excess, narcissism, whatever you want to call it, right? 25,000 selfies for the average millennial. And there's a growing number of selfie wrist injuries diagnosed by doctors. Selfie wrist injury? I never thought I'd see the day. By the way, I have to make a slide out of this or I forget to do it. Got a sign-in sheet for those who are just coming in. That was the reason I asked how many of you weren't here because I want to get, uh, get you guys in touch. So please get on the newsletter there with the sign-in sheet. We'll keep you posted, keep you updated. Speaking of this, more than 200,000 teens had plastic surgery last year and social media had a lot to do with it. 200,000? Doctors Rorick and Cho of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons stated the demand for plastic surgery in adolescents has increased dramatically. What is going on there? Well, it's insecurity, isn't it? Here you have social media addicts are more likely to feel inadequate when it comes to their careers and their looks. Feelings of inadequacy, feelings of low self-worth, insecurity. Now you might say, but Scott, didn't you say it was narcissism? Which is it? Aren't these opposites? Narcissism says, I'm the greatest. Insecurity says, I'm worthless. Aren't these opposites? No, they're two sides of the same coin of self, right? Being thinking of dwelling upon self, how great I am or how horrible I am. Satan wants to get us into one of those two pitfalls. If he can get us into the I, I will ascend. I will be above others like he did in, in Isaiah 14. I'm going to be in the position of God. Eve, you will be like God. He wants us in self-promotion or he's the accuser sometimes for us, isn't he? and we mess up and he's like you did it again and God couldn't possibly forgive you you're such a rotten sinner and you know what Ellen White wrote about that she says when Satan comes to you and says you're just a sinner say to say back to him well Jesus came to save sinners hmm, there you go right I mean his name means salvation Jesus Yahweh's salvation that's his very name, for he shall save his people from their sins. So don't let the accuser come and beat you down like that. The media mind does become insecure, self-loathing, or narcissistic. But the mind of Christ, secure in Christ. How do we develop that security in Christ? We have to ask, what is your worth? What is the worth of a human soul? How is it valued? How is it measured? Well, I'll tell you how it's measured. This is mind-boggling to me. I cannot conceive and understand this in my little human brain. I have to take it on faith and just let my brain explode when I hear this. The Son of God, the divine Son of God, came to this earth to die in my place, saying, you, your soul, your life, your eternal life is worth more to me than my own life. I will die in your place. And you're going, wait a minute. No, there's no way. I, I, I'm not the same value as the divine son of God, the eternal one. I'm there, that, 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 that can't be. And yes, Jesus is above us on the totem pole, so to speak. But it, this is the mind of Christ, that he made himself nothing. 
made himself into the form of a servant, took on human nature and became obedient to death, even death on a cross to pay for our sins, to redeem us and to prove once and for all that he loves us enough. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves his enemies, the Bible says. This says the father is kind to the wicked. That's unbelievable to me that when Jesus was baptized and the father said to him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Yes, he is the son of God. But get, get this, Jesus was not ashamed to call us what? Brethren, it says in Hebrews. Jesus was not ashamed to call us brethren. We've been adopted into the family of God and we call his father, father. So he was not ashamed to call us brethren. He's in the human race now the elder brother of the human race, if you will, and the perfect son of God who was tempted in every point just as we are, overcame, and now by his grace and power in our lives, we overcome. Now, in the Desire of Ages, it says that when Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke those words, it says those same words are applied to us. So the Father says to me, you are my beloved son. He says to you, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. The same words he said to Jesus, impossible. Jesus lived a perfect life. I am a sinner. How could he say those words to me? Listen, Jesus' righteousness, when we repent and come to him in confession of heart, his righteousness is applied to us. And so the father looks at us and says, I'm well pleased in you. You have perfect righteousness and we can walk in newness of life and be transformed and renewed of our minds and grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he says, I love you in the same words I gave to Jesus, I give to you. So if we're ever in doubt because the accuser is coming along and we feel low self-worth in any area in our lives, because you know what? This social media thing, Satan loves to to target people. He loves to play upon their vulnerabilities. Did you know that the founding president of Facebook, Sean Parker, along with Mark Zuckerberg there at the very beginning, he said, we designed this platform to exploit, here's a quote, we were exploiting vulnerabilities in human psychology. And then Facebook was busted with some leaked documents out of Australia where they were caught bragging to advertisers saying, we're able to read and interpret the emotional state of our young users and identify when they're in especially a vulnerable state emotionally, and that's where you can target them with, their, with your advertisements. That is diabolical, isn't it? I mean, why wasn't this global news for the next month? I don't know, but that's pretty nasty stuff. And he, he was, by the way, Sean Parker was kind of apologizing. He went on this apology tour, and he's, he's, he's speaking for, for in interviews and saying, we were exploiting vulnerabilities in human psychology. More about that in a minute. Gene Twenge, author of iGen, points out that beginning in 2010 to 12, around the time of ubiquitous smartphone use and social media use, feelings of low self-worth in young people skyrocketed like never before. Well, why? Because of this very thing. And we'll talk more about that issue. But Empathy, when we're talking about loving others, that's being other-centered, right? Thinking about other people's feelings and thoughts and benefit uh, their best interests. The Bible says that in the last days, the love of many will wax cold, right? The love of most will, will grow cold in the last days. And this is love. 40% drop in empathy in young people in this millennium. And the authors of that study linked it to uh, social media use, and video game use and be, making that your social life. 
If you missed the, the first session this morning, there's a loneliness epidemic was the Surgeon General's phrase for it. And cutting back on social media reduces loneliness massively in studies. If you eliminate it, it reduces loneliness for college students, uh, 36%. And so people are really struggling with that as well. The authors of this study said people are doing their socializing online and hence are losing empathy for real people in their lives. And it even, even extends to the simple presence of a phone. Just having the phone sitting there in a social uh, engagement, even if you're not using it. In this study, they said, okay, nobody's touching their phone, but set the phone on the table. Another group they had in a different room and a control group would just throw a notebook on your table and have a conversation. Get to know this person. And then after the conversation was over, they scored the quality of the bond that people formed, you know, interest in the other, curiosity about them, you know, uh, would you want to hang out with them, that kind of thing. And they found that people who had the phone just sitting there, not even being used, had a lower quality social bond than those who just had a notebook sitting there. So we can sum that up with the media mind is cold, but the mind of Christ is caring. And it's this cold. This headline doesn't sum it up very well. Let me give you the actual data from the Wall Street Journal report on a study that two-thirds, two-thirds of teens, when asked, would you rather just chat with your friends online, text them, Snapchat them, whatever, or get together and be together in person? Two-thirds of them said, oh, I don't need to get together with my friends. I'll just chat them. This is so mind-boggling to me. Like, maybe that's, I shouldn't be so blown away by that because this is super normal. But it's not normal. I'm not going to accept that. we got to get together. What, two-thirds? And there's something evil, of course, about, a, 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 you know, a text message that goes without saying. But when we're doing four times more social media than social, for every one hour we're with people, we're doing four hours of online social contact. This is getting way out of balance, and it's the reason we have a loneliness epidemic. And it's also the reason the former Facebook executive said, I feel tremendous guilt for what I helped to make. So I feel tremendous guilt. His name is Chamath. He came out and said, we are literally creating tools that are destroying the social fabric of how society works. He said, we are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. The media mind is disconnected. The mind of Christ is affectionate. True affection, true empathy, true love, eye contact, all of it. That's how real communication works, by the way. Real communication includes more than just words. It includes nonverbal cues, countless nonverbal aspects of communication, from the eye contact to the facial expressions, to the vocal tones, to the proximity, how close we are one to the other, to hand and bodily gestures, to vocal tones, to everything. I mean, it's all kinds of things that are a part of human communication that are nonverbal. Real communication also involves a merging of the emotion in the moment. When you text somebody, there's not the immediacy of I'm in your presence and I see in your, your response to my comment. So, for example, somebody uh, shares uh, you know, a pain, a sorrow, a, something bad that's happened in the last week or whatever, and your, your face kind of falls with them and your posture and you get a little closer. Or maybe you, 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 you put your arm around them or whatever it might be. Immediately in the moment, there's a merging of the emotion or the positive thing. Like, I just went on the best hike. It was so great. And your face lights up right as they're talking. And 
and, and then you're immediately responding with words too. Instead of waiting, you know, 45 minutes till the text comes back or whatever, there's a merging of the emotion in the moment. So let's not miss out on the joy and the benefits of real communication in, in, while we're using these tools as well. Another thing about the real communication, thirdly, is uh, the greeting and the goodbye moment. This is where you come into the common space that you share together and you acknowledge the other person. Yeah, you matter to me, right? I'm going to say hello. I'm going to shake the hand or do the hug or whatever. Greet each other with a holy kiss in the Bible times it was. And so, so there's an injunction to, to acknowledge the other and, and honor them as you matter to me. I'm going to look at you and we'll, we'll, we'll now occupy this common space together for whatever period of time the allotted, the allotted social uh, contact would be. And the goodbye moment as well. I'm going to acknowledge you and, and, and say the goodbye in some, in some way. And different cultures do these different ways. But the cool thing about the real space, I was thinking about this. this. This phone, this device is just a few inches by a few inches in size, right? It's very small. But they have names for the online called cyberspace. The information superhighway. And there's all these like awesome sounding pitch, you know, a sales pitch for going online. And when I get on there, it's like an abundance of social. I mentioned this morning, the first session, this, we're the most socially connected generation in history. So we've been told because I got hundreds of friends on there. I got all kinds of contacts coming in and it's this incredible, amazing thing in the virtual timeout. This is a few inches. God's three-dimensional space is expansive. It's real. It's big. It's vibrant. It's multidimensional in terms of everything. The sights, the smells, the sounds, the touch. And when I, when I had a, um, one of my children, he was seven at the time, he walked up to me and there was this pallet sitting there, you know, a wooden pallet. And it was uh, leaned up against the, the wood burner at our house in the country where we live. And he goes, Dad, can I destroy that pallet? And I'm like, yes, that's a great question for a boy to ask. Dad, can I destroy that pallet? And when I saw him take his little boy axe and start swinging into that thing and the bits start flying and he spends a lot of time on it and I'm cheering him on and he goes, Dad, he's done with it. He goes, Dad, can I, can I see you split some wood again? He loves watching that thing. I mean, that's just the, the sights and the sounds and the real and the relationship and the high fives and Nothing can replace that, right? And it, I, I just ha it's kind of a weird example maybe, but it, to me it just spoke to my heart at that point in that moment in my kid's life, in my day, and where I was thinking. And I'm like, praise God for the real. And you pick your thing, relationships, pets, you know, real things, nature. It's way, 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 way better than the online variant of anything. And that's not to say media is evil or screens are evil or texting is evil. If you missed the early part, 1844 was the launch and the birth of modern media with the telegraph because God wants to get the truth out. So use social media, use media. You know, our DVDs, of course, right? And satellite media is airing my seminars. I love that, that we can get the truth out. So, so just a, a word of balance on that. But if you ask me to have to choose, right? Um, the I reality versus God's reality in the three-dimensional. You know, I'll take this one any day. Satan had his own I reality, didn't he? I, 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 I. Kind of a coincidence, interesting thing. But I was looking at studies on sociological family dynamics and the hi, honey, I'm home moment that has been a feature of American culture for generations where 
you know, in, in this fallen world, Adam leaves the nest in many cases and goes and, and earns a living and, 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 and comes back. When, that, when you have that reuniting moment, it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's positive, right? And the kids come running. You have a big hugs and whatever. Well, did you know that today only 50% of dads greet their families when they come home? What? Only half? What are they doing? Well, only one third of moms are looking, are stopping what they're doing to greet their husbands when they come in from work. Children rarely greet their fathers, and half the time the family members don't even look up for a second to acknowledge his presence. So with the breakdown in relationships, friendships, family, church attendance, all of it. Did you know that the majority of Anglicans now engage in the liturgy and church things online? Uh, and and the, the tipping point has happened. Like, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing audio verse and all of that. That's awesome. That's awesome. But let us not give up. Let us not neglect, Hebrews 10, 25, assembling together. So, so when, we, when we start replacing the real with the virtual for everything, here's one of the consequences. For young people especially, when their vulnerabilities are played upon and bullying is happening online, after holding steady for decades, immediately after the advent of social media, teen suicide rose by 70% in just 10 years. Among age 10 to 14, the rate went up 133%. And among 12 to 14-year-old girls, suicide up threefold. What just happened? Threefold increase in suicide among young girls age 12 to 14? I mean, why is this not on headline news every night? I mean, this is a massive, if the loneliness epidemic is worthy of that term, this is massive, you know, convergence of the ultimate crises you've ever thought of. 133% increase in suicide for 10 to 14 year olds, 70% for teens, 133% for 10. I, I never thought I would see these kinds of numbers. We would be alarmed if we saw like a 20% increase or something. That's 133% increase. Gene Twenge says, that the screen time for adolescents impacts their mental health even more than it impacts the mental health of younger children. Why are more American teenagers suffering from severe anxiety? American uh, Psychological Association survey shows, shows teen stress rivals that adults. This study showed a 60% jump in depression among teens in just a six-year period of time. And you might say, well, mental health consultations and diagnoses are more accepted or more, more welcomed and encouraged, and so the numbers are up. No, these were studies that were done across the population in general using the diagnostic criteria that the psychiatrists use, but asking it across the board in the general population. So these aren't people who are seeking mental health assistance. This is a 60% rise in people who would qualify for major depression if they were going to seek diagnoses. So it's a massive leap, 60%. So what, what Dr. Cardara says here, I've worked with over a thousand teens in the past 15 years and have observed that students who have been raised on a high-tech diet not only appear to struggle more with attention and focus, but also seem to suffer more, suffer from an adolescent malaise that appears to be a direct byproduct of their digital immersion. Indeed, over 200 peer-reviewed studies point to screen time correlating to increased ADHD, screen addiction, we'll talk about that in a minute, increased aggression, we talked about ADHD and aggression in the previous session, also depression, anxiety, even psychosis, 200 peer-reviewed studies, what more do we need? Here's Sean Parker again, he says, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. You can hear the, the, the regret 
in his heart as he's looking back on the consequences of so much social media for so many people at such ages as these younger kids we were talking about in the previous slide. There was a massive study of half a million teens. It found the more social media, the more mental health problems across the board. So the media mind becomes dysfunctional. But the mind of Christ, we can take hope and heart that God has a plan to restore, to redeem, to renew, to transform. The mind of Christ is balanced and well. Now, it's not just teens. More research says Facebook can cause depression, this time among millennials. Mental health issues increased significantly in young adults over the last decade. And of course, it's not just Facebook. It's a, the so much online social where you now have 2.7 times increased likelihood, if you're a college student, 2.7 times more likely to be um, depressed if you're a heavy social media user than if you use very little. Um, also, college campus mental health professionals, you ask them, how are things going in the counseling office? They're like, we're inundated. We can't handle it all. One in four college students is now diagnosed with a mental health disorder. One in four. And so the media mind is becoming stressed, anxious, and depressed. But the mind of Christ, take a deep breath, content, joyful, peaceful, because once two studies, University of Pennsylvania and Denmark studies, found that when you reduce social media use to 30 minutes a day or you eliminate it altogether in the case of the Denmark study, depression rates drop dramatically. 33% drop in depression in one week of no social media in the Denmark study. We also saw this morning, same study found a 36% drop in loneliness when you go one week without social media. You see drops also in that study when you reduce it to 30 minutes per day. Now, I should mention that this is not equally distributed among the population. Some people are having greater mental health damages and effects than others. And when they've dug into the, the, the demographics and the type personality types a little bit, they find that when people have feelings and thoughts like these on the screen, they are more likely to be harmed by social media use. So people who feel many of my friends are happier than me. Sometimes you have the feeling I often feel inferior to others. Sometimes you have the feeling my friends are, have a better life than me. Those are, that's a profile of somebody who's a good candidate for getting off of social media because there is much greater harm there. And it's not to condemn social media. When we say for what purposes on this list of questions we're kind of going through, touching on a few of those today. What purposes are we using the media for? We want to always have an intentionality, a spiritual purpose, a meaning for, uh, and hopefully it's not our social life, but it can enhance, it can, it can you know, augment our real social life to connect with somebody. No sin in that, but hopefully it's not replacing our social life like four to one, and hopefully it has a spiritual purpose. Uh, my wife and I talked to a mother a while ago, and she, by the way, those questions my, my wife happened to say, that's me. And she gave up social media completely. For her, that was the right choice. And she's way happier. And she's like, it's a, much of a benefit in my life. She's spoken on this publicly. It's on this one here called Remnant Rising, if you want to hear a little bit. The only time my wife appears on any of my seminars, <laughs> disc, disc uh, two of that one. I, I was very, very pleased that she joined me on the platform for that session. But um, she, she shares uh, her story in and, and, and media use. And 
She said, you know what, honey, lock me out. Uh, change my password. I'm going to take a 30-day um, social media fast. I said, okay, I'll do that. I changed the password. And at the end of the 30 days, she's like, I have more time. I'm way happier. Everything's just better. And, uh, you know, I was addicted to it. I mean, we'll talk about addiction in just a second. But um, so for what purposes? We talked to this other mother. We're like, how do you do it? And the other young adult. And she's like, well, I've got, the, I've got a little daughter. And the, the way I do it is I, 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 I use this as a ministry outlet. I really want to encourage people, pray for people, share a Bible verse. And she says, here's at what times of the day. Here's what duration of use. She says, I have a max of 30 minutes. And I go on there. And, and her time of the day to do it is in the morning. She says, I, I have it at a set place. Um, that would be these questions on what types of devices at what locations. Um, this can follow us everywhere and notify us every second of the day, right? And it can take over our lives when it's on our mobile devices and all the notifications are on and we have all the social media apps, then it is in charge of me. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm not in control of my use of the technology. So she's like, okay, I go to my computer 30 minutes a day in the morning if, if the morning has you know, worked out and the, the, the little girl isn't awake yet and, and you've done your devotions and planned the day and all of that. So she doesn't go on every day. That's just a few examples of some people who have taken some more, you might say, extreme stands. But if we're seeing extreme mental health problems, maybe extreme uh, situations call for extreme measures or at least a trial, you know, a three-week or a seven-day or a one-month fast from these things. We talked about having different set of lenses to look at life through. And when you go to the optometrist, maybe you didn't know that you were seeing blurry because it it was minor, but you, you look at it through a new set of lenses and you see clearly, uh, see more clearly and you didn't even know that you could use a new set of lenses. Now, speaking of this issue of the, of the youth, this is Jean Twenge. She speaks of how this, in her book, iGen, this generation of young people, she calls them, quote, totally unprepared for adulthood. 18-year-olds now act like 15-year-olds used to. And she's not name-calling, trying to be mean. She's just looking at how we live our lives. And there's been an arrested development. 13-year-olds act like 10-year-olds used to. The media mind is in a state of arrested development. But the mind of Christ is maturing properly. And this starts from an early age, by the way. This is uh, preschoolers, uh, kindergartners going to school. Children not toilet trained when they start school in this study in the UK. Two-thirds of teachers said, these little kids, two-thirds of them, said they have no self-help skills, they know how to swipe a phone, but don't have a clue about much anything else. And then you see children learn to tie shoelaces later than ever before. And kids use text so much they can't hold a pencil anymore. And study says kids understand smartphones better than real life. So when we are inducting our children from babyhood in the iPad activity seat for newborns and in the iPoddy that we saw in the last session, yes, there's such a thing as an iPoddy, we, 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 we hamper their development in major ways. And not just with fine motor skills, because it's hard to tie your shoelaces when you're seven. I get it. But this, this thing is gross motor skills and core muscles and big movements are struggling for the children. And playground injuries have increased. Now that made me scratch my head and, and, and crinkle my forehead a little bit with a puzzled look saying, hold on, playgrounds are way safer than they used to be, right? <laughs> the images you see on the screen... I mean, it used to be that they had fun as the main operative goal in mind when they designed playgrounds. Today, the operative word would be safety first, and there's nothing wrong with that. We want safety. But wait a minute. If, if the playground uh, designs today are, are significantly safer than they were when kids were swinging around that with their legs behind them through the air and climbing that and going down on their feet on a frosty morning in Michigan like I did in the 80s, 
why are playground, playground injuries increasing? It's because we're, not, we're only navigating the virtual world and we're not playing as much as we used to with the little children. Speaking of the little children, we moved the, up then into adulthood and the medical students raised on screens lack skills for surgery, the Guardian reported. Roger Kneebone, appropriate name for a surgical professor at, at Imperial College London, said that a decline in hands-on creative subjects at school, no hands-on stuff, right? No hands-on hobbies at home means that students often do not have a basic understanding of the physical world. He's like, we're having a hard time finding quality candidates for our surgical programs, medical programs, pilot programs. We used to hear that video gaming will produce the best surgeons and the best pilots the world has ever seen. We already covered the best drivers on the road and it reduces executive function and frustration tolerance and it makes you more likely to lash out and have outbursts and doing so much media reduces frontal lobe and that increases the likelihood for aggressive driving. That was the session you missed. But you also need a good prefrontal cortex for self-discipline, for study in medical school, right? And you have a generation raised with so much entertainment and a reduced executive function. It is a struggle for many of these young people. And same thing with the, with the pilots to start, survive uh, the rigorous course of study that they put you through with that. But they said, hey, they're navigating a three-dimensional world in the video game, so they're going to be great at all these things. I talked to a mechanics professor, auto mechanics teacher at a high school. I just anecdotally, I said, how are your kids doing these days? Have you seen a change in the last 20 years? He goes, have I? In the 90s, I would get the majority of my kids competent in, in, in auto mechanics by the end of the semester, by the end of the year. Today, I'm lucky to get 12 to 15 percent of them, and it's a major, major struggle. And so when you read from Dr. Maggie Jackson in her book, Distracted, she nails it. She says, video games teach the kinds of skills useful for playing more video games and not much more. So yeah, when you get the, the, the rehab for gaming addicts in Seattle and you ask the founder of this, how are these young adult men doing, mostly men? And she says, you wouldn't believe it. They, they come in checking into this rehab program to recover from their video game addiction. You'd be shocked how many of them don't know how to clean a bathroom, don't know how to make breakfast, basic, 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 like eight-year-old eight age life skills that you're learning as a child, they don't have at 25. Unbelievable that we were missing out so much on that. By the way, I covered that in Media on the Brain in the Demise of Guys. This was Disc 5, Demise of Guys, Video Gaming and Pornography Addiction. But it got even worse after I did that. In 2016, we, we, you know, we got great employment, you know, good, good economic activity. A quarter of young adult males were not working. I don't know what the latest numbers are. It's probably not a whole lot different from that. A full quarter, when unemployment is like 4%, right? A full quarter, 25% of young adult men not working. The media mind is lacking practical skills. The mind of Christ, well-rounded. Now, back to that arrested development. The percentage of teens that have a job has been cut in half. The average teen now gets less exercise than the average 60-year-old. They're studying less, they do less volunteer work, they do fewer extracurricular activities, and they're getting their driver's licenses later than ever before. So you're like, wait a minute, Scott, what are we doing with all our time if we're doing less of everything. Well, I left one thing off, didn't I? Media use. That one has skyrocketed to nine hours a day. So life declining, media, everything online, using so much entertainment, video games and everything, increasing dramatically, which by the way, there's a silver lining in this. 
I don't really mind this one because when I was 16, I was like getting my driver's license the day of all my buddies, like we went out and got in trouble. And so there's a silver lining that promiscuity is down with teens. Alcohol consumption is down. And there's some, some, some positive, I, I guess you could say benefits, but it would be a real benefit if we were doing something much better with our time than just going online, just becoming video game addicts. And when you're online so much, you lose your individual thinking capacity and you start eating Tide Pods. Remember this? 2017, the Tide Pod eating craze, it went viral. People were like, yeah, I'm going to eat laundry detergent too. What? Now, I sometimes feel like I'm living in a dystopic, futuristic novel that somebody would have dreamed up you know, 50 years ago or 20 years ago even. Like, imagine, in the near future, little babies will be inducted into a virtual world from the iPad activity seat and will learn to use the potty on something called an iPotty. And people will be on their devices so much that they'll develop forward head posture permanently, like they're walking into the street and we'll need to move the stoplights from being up at eye level to down at curb level because human beings now live down here. And as children develop, injuries will increase and they will not be playing on playgrounds. And then the Tide Pod eating craze will occur among youth. And we will have it to the point where we are losing our vision and our sight from so much screen time. And you could go on and on with this, right? And the loneliness epidemic and the people spend four times more. I, I could just go through the whole seminar over the last like two hours, but I won't. All, you know, all these strange things. Cuddling with strangers craze, a chair that hugs you back. I, mean, I, can't even, I can't even remember it all. You couldn't make this stuff up 20 years ago. If you're like, this is what's going to happen. You'd be like, that's ridiculous, right? And that's the world we live in. I know it's ridiculous. But you know Revelation 13 is going to be fulfilled. And Satan's going to have the whole world wonders after the beast. How does he get that level of deception happening? When people have an attention span that's eight seconds and we're not thinking critically, which, you know, takes 15 to 20 minutes, a thousand seconds for that creative individual problem-solving thought to take place, as we saw in the previous session, you're not going to be able to discern deception from reality, from truth in this generation where people are eating time. And, and people fell for this too. Do you remember this one? Y'all know this happens if you microwave foil for three minutes. People balled up their tin foil, put it in the microwave, three minutes, beep, 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 turned it on. Because somebody on Twitter did a practical joke on them and people are that dull. We are struggling in this culture. And people went and posted, hey, it didn't work for me. It was sparking and flaming and it was acting crazy. And the prankster goes, are you sure you did it for three minutes? Try it again. And they're like, okay. What? Whoa. It's no wonder that people are going to believe a blatant, obvious deception. Let's just take the fourth commandment, right? The counterfeit Sabbath. You got the whole world wonders after the beast, and the social media generation has the herd mentality. Whatever's trendy, whatever I'm supposed to act like, I'm following that. Instead of following the lamb wherever he goes, I'm going to follow the crowd. What does the Bible say? Don't follow the crowd into doing evil. Don't follow a crowd into deception. Don't follow the crowd into being conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, another thing that I thought, this, this belongs in the fictitious novel of 20 years ago that was never written, which describes our day. Did you know, Neil Postman actually predicted this. He said in his book, The Disappearance of Childhood, 30, 40 years ago, he wrote, we're going to witness the disappearance of childhood because of so much media and children watching TV and being glued to the screens and video games were coming in. He sounded the alarm and people, it's like, people were like, that's alarmist hyperbole. 
No, it was prophetic, if anything, not literally, but very, very, very cognizant of him to notice what was coming down the pike. Because today, three quarters of UK children, this would be similar in the United States, spend less time outdoors than prison inmates spend outdoors. We are so nature deprived. Richard Louvre calls it nature deficit disorder. (laughs) Our children, all of us, have a deficit of nature exposure. In this book, he also says, he points out studies that have been done of children in nature and how the majority of 11-year-olds, when they're asked about their time in nature, the majority of them admit that they have never climbed a tree before. You're like, what did you just say, Scott? Yeah, add that to the crazy list of insanity. iPotties and all of this. The majority of 11-year-olds have never climbed a tree. Did you ever think you would see the day? This is the last days, isn't it? They asked these children who had climbed a tree, hey, what did you think about it when you were up there? Did you like it? A third of them only, um, or I'm sorry, a third of them were said, I would want to go to the park. Only a third of them. And the majority of those who had climbed a tree said, I was thinking about actually getting in and doing my video games and it wasn't really that fun. I don't, didn't really do it again. That's sad, right? So when you read from Dr. Nicholas Cardaris, kids raised with screens were almost universally what I like to call uninterested and uninteresting. Bored and boring. They lacked a natural curiosity and a sense of wonder and imagination that non-screen kids seemed to have. They didn't know or care to know about what was happening around them in the world. All that seemed to drive them was a perpetual need to be stimulated and entertained by their digital devices. We could sum that up with the media mind is bored and boring. The mind of Christ is curious and inquisitive. It hungers and thirsts for knowledge. The media mind is immersed in the counterfeit reality. The mind of Christ is awake to the wonders of God's reality, how to be human again. The media mind is enclosed in a virtual prison. Three quarters of them, more time and uh, less, uh, three quarters of kids uh, spend less time outdoors than prison inmates do. But the mind of Christ is fully alive. Now, the manipulation that is taking place was exposed by Chamath once again, the former Facebook executive. He said, not only is it ripping apart the social fabric of how society works, but you don't realize it, but you are being programmed. You, whoa, that's heavy stuff from a former executive. I thought I was just online and just doing my own thing and I'm my own person. You are being programmed. A few examples. The guy that invented the like button, he says, we've messed with people's dopamine so badly because they want the approval, they want the likes. He says, I regret making it because it's just people's self-worth and all of that. He says, I've taken the social media apps off my phone completely because I know how addictive this can become. And I'll use certain social media with certain people intentionally at a stationary location, not on my computer. He says, uh, Snapchat for me is digital heroin. This is the man who invented the pull down to refresh function. He says this, they asked him, is this kind of like a slot machine where you pull it down and then it circles and thinks about it and thinks about it and thinks about it and then ding, 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 all the messages light up. He's like, yep, that's exactly what it is. And he says, why do they even keep the function that I invented? Data speeds are so fast, it can auto refresh. You don't need to do the little ritual of pulling it down. Well, that would defeat the purpose of getting the dopamine rush because when you don't know if you're going to get the messages, when you don't know if you're going to get the cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching in the casino, that increases increases the dopamine hit 400%. They call it variable rewards. If you know you got the reward, you get a little bit of a hit of dopamine and pleasure. But if you don't know whether you're going to get the the reward, then it increases at 400%. By the way, Sean Parker, 
founding president of Facebook also said, we, we designed it to give them a little dopamine hit. Uh, right at the right time to keep them on the platform longer. So he's using addiction language there. And again, he's apologizing for it. I'm not trying to be hard on these guys. He's confessing, if you will, apologizing, where he says, the inventors, the creators of social media, it's me, it's Mark Zuckerberg, it's Kevin Systrom on Instagram, it's all of these people understood this consciously, and we did it anyway. He says, shame on us. So we've got to use these tools aware if we're going to use these tools, some people can just get off completely and have a very happy life. But um, it's, it, we got to be aware that there is an effort to program people. He admitted we are handicapping people's ability to self-regulate, give them a little dopamine hit, and we knew what we were doing consciously, and we did it anyway. This is the inventor of a smartphone game called Flappy Bird. He was making $50,000 a day. He saw how many people were downloading the app, using the game, wasting hours of their time, millions of people, tens of millions of man hours being wasted, people's lives being messed up from a silly little game. It's not that worldly, right? It's not bad. We have to redeem the time for the days are evil. Time is short. What are we doing playing video games? He even had, was convicted. He wasn't looking at it through like, you know, prophecy lens, uh, but he felt guilty. He pulled the smartphone game from the app store and said, I'm not going to have that on my conscience anymore. And other people created knockoff games and walked away with the cash, but this guy walked away with his integrity. The study of more than 400 8th and 11th graders found that many teenage texters had a lot in common with compulsive gamblers, including losing sleep because of texting, problems cutting back on texting, and lying to cover up the amount of time they spent texting. And again, these are tools. You hold the smartphone in your hand in 2007. You're like, I'm in the driver's seat. This is a tool in my hands. I am in control. Fast forward 12 years and the tables have turned. The, the little smartphone man is holding the little guy in his hand. It's as if it is using us, not us, us using it. This is James Williams. He created one of the most important advertising metrics in the history of the Internet. He was working for Google one day. He looked at a display on the screens of all of the, the fancy data and stats of, of, of what, where traffic was going and how his manipulative methods had directed people to things. And he saw that's a million people. He called people over. Look at this data point. That's a million people that we just caused to do something right there in the last however many minutes. It wasn't in their best interest to do that. We manipulated them. It wasn't even their choice. He felt a pang of conscience. And now he's come out with all these other people speaking out against the largest, most standardized, and most centralized form of attention control in history. Whoa, prophecy students, is your red flag going up right there? Let me read it again. The largest, most standardized, and most centralized form of attention control in human history. This is Tristan Harris. He studied in the Persuasive Technology Laboratory at Stanford, which is a silly name for it, Persuasive Technology. He says when we were studying there, they taught us covert methods to capture and hold attention and direct people's online activity. Covert methods? That doesn't sound like persuasion. Persuasion is appealing to people's reason, presenting evidence. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Is that what the serpent says? No, he is more crafty, more tricky, more subtle than any beast of the field, of the, of the garden. He uses lies. He uses deception. He is the father of lies. And so when Tristan Harris points out that never before in history have the decisions of a handful of designers had so much impact on how millions of people around the world spend their attention, he was spot on. He says, all of us are jacked into this system. All of our minds can be hijacked. 
our choices are not as free as we think they are. A handful of people working at a handful of technology companies through their choices will steer what a billion people are thinking today. That's heavy stuff, isn't it, prophecy students? One little technique he says they use to mess with people's amygdala and their limbic system is to give them a little alarm signal by using the color red on the notification instead of the color blue, which was not producing enough engagement on the platform. He says they changed it to red, engagement skyrocketed because the red is used as a trigger color, as an alarm signal. Now, by the way, when I talk about social media, I'm not judging anybody because I grew up in the 90s. The 90s was actually the birth of social media. What is that sound I'm hearing? That's a telephone dialing up to the internet. I was 16 years old, 1996, a social media addict. You're like, what are these terrible sounds? It's a dial-up modem. And you log on. Notice the picture is like you're alone. Then you're getting together. And I'd be looking up profiles of girls online, finding people to chat with till two in the morning. Embarrassing, I know, to admit I'm being vulnerable and honest with you. Please don't judge me. The old has gone. The new has come. I am a new creation. My mom would walk in. She'd be like, Scott, why are you still up? <laughs> like, why are you letting me do this is probably what I'm asking now. My parents are wonderful. But anyway, then the moment would happen. The ultimate dopamine hit. Did I get any? Did I? Did I? Did I? You got mail. Yeah, I got mail. Electronic mail. Email. Now, you know you're addicted when, in a recent survey, internet connection outranks blank in the things millennials value most for quality of life. Do you know what it is? Hot water and daylight. We would rather give up hot water. And nature, God's world, the light of day, then have to give up our internet connection. That's addiction right there. Nomophobia, which 66% of people suffer from, ranks as high on people's fear scale as a terrorist attack. Whoa, you don't die if you leave your phone at home. I have fear of not having my mobile phone. They ask people what word best describes your feelings when you've misplaced your phone. And 73% of people selected the word panic, panic. I have a serious case of nomophobia. I'm having some FOMO setting in. I'm missing out. The social media is happening all around me and I'm missing out. Fear of missing out. I have smartphone loss anxiety disorder. That's an actual thing. Science daily. A science publication, smartphone loss, anxiety disorder. In Sherry Turkle's research at MIT, she has found that a lost cell phone hits people emotionally like the death of a loved one. More on that in the afternoon session. Dr. Cardaris, author of Glow Kids, I quoted this in the 30-second blurb. I've, I've worked with hundreds of heroin addicts. And what I can say is that it's easier to treat a heroin addict than a true screen addict. This is a real addiction. Dr. Peter Weibrow at UCLA Neuroscience talks about it as electronic cocaine. Chinese researchers use the term digital heroin. Dr. Dunkley says it's a stimulant like caffeine, amphetamines, or cocaine. Dr. Andrew Doan and the U.S. Navy addiction specialist at the Pentagon says, these video game designers are specialists. Obviously, their craft is making the games as addictive as possible. It is digital pharmakia, Greek for sorcery or drug use. 
Back to Dr. Cardaris, he says, we now know that those iPads, smartphones, and Xboxes are a form of digital drug. Recent brain imaging research is showing that they affect the brain's frontal cortex, which controls executive function, including impulse control, in exactly the same way that cocaine does. It's a digital drug like cocaine reducing our prefrontal cortex. And the average video game doubles the amount of dopamine in the brain, the same amount you get from a dose of speed, the 80s rave drug. This is Ian Bogost, a famous video game creator. He says these habit-forming technologies are the scandal, the cigarettes of this century, the scandal of this century like cigarette companies were. So all of that to say the media mind is addicted, but the mind of Christ. Take a deep breath. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You fast from these things, you give up video games completely because what's the point to begin with, right? In the last days and the time is short. And you find, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's going to give us the victory over every habit. But as he says, your kid's brain on Minecraft looks like a brain on drugs. No wonder we have a hard time peeling kids from their screens and find them agitated when their screen time is interrupted. So when I go to what kinds of media, and I think about video games in general, and your brain on drugs, and some people are totally addicted to social media too, by the way, but, but, but with video games, to me, it's a different thing. Because when I was a kid growing up, there were these commercials with an egg and a frying pan. Have you heard about this? The egg, frying pan, this is your brain, the egg this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And it would be this ominous music, and I'd be like, no, I don't have any questions. And I'd go to the dime store, and I'd buy myself a pack of candy cigarettes, and I'd open up the pack, and it would say, say no to drugs, ironically, because it's candy cigarettes. But anyway, say no to drugs on the billboard. Say no to drugs was coming at me everywhere because the 60s and 70s had just happened. In the 80s, crack cocaine epidemic was happening. And we're hearing a lot of advocacy for people with the, with the drug issues of our day. Where are the public service announcements for video game addiction, for pornography addiction, even for social media addiction? I had a chapel speaker come and he's like, hey kids, I'm from the 60s. And I grew up, and I played in the band and did a lot of drugs. And what was I going to say? I don't remember. And I was like, I don't want to have that happen to me. I didn't touch drugs. I wasn't trying to be a good teenager. I thought being a Christian meant I say I believe in Jesus as my Savior. Everybody sins, and that's pretty much okay because you're just gonna. And I just ask forgiveness and pursue on with a life of living how I want, and I'm going to be in heaven. That's what I thought what being a Christian was. Oh, wow. We need some theology. By the way, I, I, I did not grow up with the, with the present truth, so... Uh, wonderful truths came into my life as a young adult, learning, learning what you all know when you read books like Steps to Christ. I mean, that lays it out. You want to understand those things, go through that book as a New Year's thing. Go through Desire of Ages, and it gives you the straight Bible gospel message. But it's time for that same, that same advocacy that people have heard about drugs to happen with this, with this digital drug and dealing with this lust issue as well. The, the Greater Lust Seminar series on, on and being enslaved to purity in a pornographic world. We need freedom as God's people. We cannot be enslaved to appetites, to lusts, to media addictions. And nobody wants to be enslaved, right? We're all like, yeah, I want that freedom. Well, are we willing to do what it takes?
Are we willing to try on a different set of lenses? Are we willing to fast from something and replace it with something better? That's the key, by the way. Something better. Let that be the watchword. Because if the brain is powerful to get you addicted to a behavior, well, guess what? It's powerful enough to get you, I'm going to put this in quotes, addicted to a new behavior, something better, something good, something wholesome, something healthy, something spiritual, something mind enhancing, something socially beneficial, something God glorifying. And when you get in a new habit, that's what God wants for us. That's the transforming and the renewing of our minds of Romans 12 verse 2. Then we can cast off all the former habits and we can say the old has gone. Behold, all things are new. I'm going to bring up waters and flowers blossoming in the desert, God says in Isaiah. You're like, what? No, I, I'm, a, I'm a barren desert. I've got nothing. God's going to bring that living water up in your heart if you will go to Jesus. If you commit to that devotional time. And the first thing in the morning, I, you know, almost everybody's just like, I'm on here first thing in the morning and doing other things. And you might use this devotionally too. I do as well. No sin in that. But are we reverting to the quick pleasure hit of I got I to gotta check in over on this thing or do that thing online or entertainment media, worst of all, and I'm going to watch some worldly thing. God says, I've got something much, much better in store for you. And in the, the end of the fourth session, I'll hit a little segment called how to escape the pleasure trap. That's what we're in, the pleasure trap. Many of us are. And so I don't have time right now to give you the, the blueprint for that. But just take heart and take hope that God has a plan for every one of us to find life to the full, the abundant life, pleasures at his right hand evermore, where eye has not seen nor ear has heard what he has in store for your life when you surrender and submit to his leading in your life. So I've said enough for this session. I got to leave you in suspense on the how to escape the pleasure trap. But the next session after this will be people of the book in the age of the app. And we're going to deal with book reading and online reading and screens and stress and literacy and, and, and the mind. One of my favorite sessions to present. So um, I'll, I'll have a closing prayer. Um, be back here um, for that session at 12 o'clock. Um, also, after the closing prayer, I'll mention one more thing that I failed to mention about uh, item about the ex exhibit booth. And if anybody's listening to the audio, by the way, I'm talking only to the audio people who are listening to this after the fact. And you're like, what are you saying with the DVDs? Email me and I'll, I'll set you up with what I'm offering to these guys, too, so that anybody can have access to our materials. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have a plan for us and that we can we can say thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know there's manipulation, but better yet, we know there's truth with a capital T. And when we behold Jesus, we can become changed. We can have minds that are renewed. We can come let us reason together. We can know the truth and the truth will set us free. We thank you for that, Jesus. And we praise you, Father, for every good and perfect gift that cometh down from the Father above. And we just embrace that now and, and, and we embrace the challenge. We embrace the, 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 the stretching of us that you are doing with us this weekend. We ask for for rebuke and chastening from you if we need it. We know that that is a form of love for Laodicea in Revelation 3. Those whom you love, you rebuke and chasten. So please give us your divine guidance and leading and that we might follow that and come apart from the world and be separate and to find the right balance of our technology use so that it's to your glory, so that it's a tool um, used by us, not, not using us. We just claim the promises of your word and we walk in that newness of life knowing we are loved, we are redeemed, we are valued by our Father in heaven. Thank you that we can call you Father. 
In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.